I'm Rick Sanchez. I've been doing news now for 30 years in two languages all over the world and right here in the United States. Interviewed four different U.S. presidents, worked at at least four or five different U.S. major television networks, and I believe after all of that news should be honest, direct, and impactful. And this, by golly, is direct impact. So here we go. The U.S. political season has begun. The horse race is on. And here are the entrants. This is the first debate for those vying to become the next Republican presidential candidate of the United States. And what did most of these tough guys spend their time doing? Taking on China, of course, because according to them, see, according to them, once we separate ourselves from China, and end our relationship with said country, all our problems will simply fade away. Here's a taste. Subsidizing China. 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 But here's the memo that every one of these political actors apparently failed to read. There is no separating us from China because our economies, our debt, our consumption base their work, uh, workforce, our appetite for the technology that we need, all of these things are inexorably tied. In fact, if any one of these presidential aspirants that you were just seeing on the screen had bothered to read the papers around the same time that they were doing this debate, just opened up a newspaper, they would have seen this. Check out this headline. Look at this. Tesla relies on China for 40% of its battery supplies. So let's just use this article as, as, as an example of uh, the present U.S. and China interdependence, where first we learn that 40% of the companies that manufacture battery storage capabilities for Tesla are Chinese. Wow. Who knew, right? Wait, there's more. 40% of Tesla's aluminum smelters are also Chinese companies. 40%. Wait, there's more. 33% of all of Tesla's inorganic chemical partners, Chinese companies, and that's just Tesla. We could probably go right down the list of all the U.S. corporations we could name, many of whom are the donors of the same men and women now running for president, and we would find out that the vast majority of those companies have financial ties in one way or another to China. Now. Does that mean that these politicians are taking money from people who are making money from China while they are also attacking China? Hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. And by the way, wouldn't that make them hypocrites? You judge for yourself. So look, politics aside, the fact is, that as much as China needs the U.S., especially because we buy everything they make, the U.S. needs China just as much. And, and, and here, here's how that has actually come to be. When our hands met, one era ended and another began. A few hours later, the president met with Chairman Mao Zedong. The 79-year-old leader was in frail health, but the lively hour-long meeting included philosophy, history, and banter. The roots of the U.S. and Chinese interdependence can be traced back 
to President Richard Nixon's landmark visit to Beijing in 1972. Who can forget that was around back then? It was a historic overture that aimed to thaw relations between the two Cold War adversaries, and it did. It did kind of end the Cold War between these two until now. Have you seen what's being said lately? More on that later. So the Nixon in China story set the stage for diplomatic ties. But see, what it really did was lay the groundwork for an expanded economic relationship between these two countries that, set, that went some, something like this. Ready? From now on, Chinese workers will make the stuff that we Americans consume. Simple. And here's how it happened. In the 1970s, under Xi Jinping, China's uh, reform and opening up policies converted the country from a closed, centrally planned economy, right, to one that is now market-oriented. So as China offered a massive labor pool and lower production costs, American businesses said, yeah, and they began shifting all of their, manu all of their manufacturing over there to, uh, to China. Can you say outsourcing? That's how it began. And really, it's never stopped. And yeah, it makes American workers angry, but it is what it is. U.S. companies all got a competitive edge through cheaper production, while China benefited from foreign investment, technological advances, and job creation for their people. In fact, China benefited so much that it ended up loaning us money. I mean, amassing a significant amount of the U.S. debt. In other words, try as we may or might to this day, we can't quit China. Just like the line in the movie, we can't quit them. Because among other things, we owe too much money. So this, this symbiotic economic relationship, cemented by intertwined supply chains, profound bilateral trade dynamics, political and economic ramifications extending far beyond the respective borders of both countries, is now one that cannot easily be taken apart, as many would try to suggest. At least not without a lot of pain on both sides, and especially to the American consumer and the taxpayer who benefits from this. See, that is the reality that you won't hear about often on the news, and that you seldom hear from this crowd. Russia further into China's hands. The Russia-China alliance is the single greatest threat we face. And joining us now to talk about this is uh, none other than uh, Surab Gupta. He's a senior Asia-Pacific uh, specialist based in uh, Washington, D.C. And to say that uh, he knows China would be an understatement. Surab, always good to, to see you. There's no one I thought of more recently than you. I was watching the GOP debates, and I was watching all of these guys just angry and explaining why the biggest problem in the United States and the world is China and what they're going to do to deal with it. Of course, they gave no uh, concrete examples and no clarity of what they were going to do. But I don't know. Did you get a chance to see that? It was it was like a bunch of angry yeah, I did, old men. I did, get a, I did get the chance to see it. And I was frankly not surprised. Uh, they're all kind of beating up and beating <laughs> each other up and then trying to beat be China on top of that. And I mean, this is just a prelude. We are going to see a lot more of this uh, in the next 12 months. 
Why? 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 What? What, what is with the? Uh, if if somehow if I bash China loud enough, more people will vote for me. Are Americans no, that, that stupid? I think where they're going at out here is trying to show that they have foreign policy cred. That a lot of them, some of them do have foreign policy cred. Others don't. And it's always good to have an enemy, someone you can beat up on, someone the he is the other or she is the other and frame it that way so you have a target and it's always, once you have a target, it's fun. Target practice is always fun for them. I'm, I'm glad you said that because uh, it was Haley, Nikki Haley, who turns in the middle of the debate to uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswani and says, you have no foreign policy experience, as if you have no right to be here on this stage. After he had said that we're actually making a mistake in our policies with both Russia and China, because what we're doing, his words, was bringing them together. And that's when she attacked him and says, your problem is you have no foreign policy experience. Maybe we need more people with less far foreign policy experience. Exactly. Then, that's exactly what I thought at that point of time. Let, let me give you... Let me make two points out here. First, Nikki Haley is saying the exact things that Liz Truss in the United Kingdom said. And Liz Truss was the shortest United Kingdom prime minister in, I think, 300 years. I mean, she, she needs to figure that out. Like, she's, her, her day has passed the, the, her ideology, what she thinks about in terms of in, international relations. It's over. Sorry. I mean, unfortunately, she was born 30 years too late. What to do? Anyway. So that's one thing about what what she what she needs to understand out here, uh, but you know, sorry. And by the way, what you're saying with that is she thinks like a Cold War hawk. She thinks like we're still in the 1950s, and yeah, we're exactly. about to she nuke each other. On those terms, and then she, you know, then Reagan came in the 1980s, and they have all inflated ideas of what Reagan did, and so everybody wants to be a Reagan, and everybody wants to be a Thatcher on the conservative side or on the Republican side, and. That, that day, to put it mildly, has passed. And I mean, Donald Trump's coming itself is a signature of that that day has passed in terms of where the Republicans used to be on certain policies. And so they need to, to I mean, wake up and, 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 and move on. Uh, but also, you know, the second point I'll make is, uh, you know, Biden actually played this up, but I think the Republicans would be completely on board in terms of he had that uh, summit in Camp David where he got the Koreans and the Japanese together and look at how tight we are and we are linking our alliances, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the latest news coming out is uh, let's get North Korea into our exercises. The Russians are saying to the Chinese, so you're going to be Russia, North Korea, China. South Korea, Japan, United States, how much fun is it going to be? And isn't this the antechamber to World War I in the European theater? And that's why, good to have folks who don't have that much foreign do policy experience, frankly. So do so you think, it's funny what you just said about North Korea. Do, do you think North Korea is suddenly going to be, and, and the reason I'm asking this question is this. Recently, I've watched a merging between India, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, some other South Pacific uh, countries, uh, Russia, uh, parts of the Middle East, even Israel is reaching out to these groups and creating a, sort of a, a bastion of, of thought process, if not unity at least. So it would not surprise me tomorrow in this bizarre world we're living in to me or to most Americans if North Korea jumped into the fray and said, you know what, we well, want to be friends They with would guys. want to do that. And others would not unwelcome that because if the South Koreans are thinking of assisting the United States in a in a Taiwan Strait contingency, 
uh, maybe they might be kept a little busier on their border, on their side by the North Koreans and the Russians. And I mean, that's what the Japanese need to think about. They've had this kind of defense posture, which is moving away from the defense of Northern Japan from what was the Soviets and the Russians to moving towards Southern Japan. And huh. just watch when, I mean, when the Russians start putting a little pressure out there uh, on the northern part, suddenly you think maybe it wasn't such a good idea to get interlocked and try to move our defense posture because we need to resolve our matters with the Russians, which are eminently resolvable. And, 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 and rather than, and so... Say, say that again. Say that again. We, we have to resolve our issues with the Russians is because they are eminently resolvable. And, 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 you, and you, you became passionate when you said that. It's eminently resolvable because, you know, the previous one of the previous of the long longstanding prime minister, Abe, he was in longstanding negotiations with, uh, with Mr. Putin. And they did work, make progress in those negotiations. And what they're trying to essentially work out is a draw. They're not trying to work a victory for one side and a defeat for the other side. Because frankly, uh, Japan's position with regard to what it calls the Northern Territories and the Kurils is actually a very, very weak one legally. Very weak one legally. The, the, the Russian side know that sovereignty essentially belongs to them, but they don't have title in terms of the signature on the title document. And so they are willing to make compromises and concessions to work around, to find a, a, a solution to that. And think about it for, for, for a country like Japan, which feels threatened by China. Would you not want to have a little more separation between China and Russia in that case? But, you know, they're all, let's get linked up and locked in with the U.S. and try to, whether the U.S. wants to fight, we will go and fight. And I, I'm, I'm, they're, they're bringing greater problems upon themselves. And that's the problem. Thanks so much, Sue Rob. Stay right there. We've got more questions for you. Okay. By the way, I'd like to continue this conversation with you. What do you say we do some conversing on Twitter? My handle is Rick Sanchez TV. That's Rick Sanchez TV. I'll be looking for you there. When we come back, what do the U.S. leaders actually say publicly about China that China would never say about us? I'll share some examples with you when we come back. In 1941, with the Nazis' help, Croatian ultranationalists, the Ustasas, proclaimed the independent state of Croatia. Shortly after seizing power, they built the Jasenovac concentration camp, a place associated with the worst atrocities committed in Yugoslavia during World War II. The Ustasas used the camp system to isolate and exterminate Serbs, Roma, Jews, and other non-Catholic minorities and political opponents of their fascist regime. Conditions in the Yasinovac camp were horrendous. The guards tortured, terrorized, and murdered prisoners. They sent them in concentration camps. So most of them died. It was incredible genocide.
there's no end in sight over how you're going to continue to destroy the earth. It's the case of the madness of the people. I tried to go to the gym, but I'm certainly not ready to fight Russia. This is also absurd. This is third world lunacy. Brainwashing. As Ursula von der Leyen likes to say, we have the tools. Why don't we just start with stability and business deals? What planet are you living on man? We have very good propaganda in our press here in Europe. I think we don't know the aftermath. Anytime that you're not allowed to ask questions, you should ask all of the questions. The more questions asked, the better the answers will be. Hey, welcome back. I'm Rick Sanchez. Although the Chinese government always takes a diplomatic path, it's part of their culture and their nature when it comes to the United States or talking about the United States, American leaders have taken almost pleasure in attacking China. I'll give you some examples. President Biden recently accused the president of China, President Xi. He said, he said he's a dictator. Strong words, not exactly diplomatic, right? President Trump said that the Chinese are thieves who have stolen from the United States. And then there's Hillary Clinton, who said that China is a doomed country. Doomed. Interesting word choice. Insinuating, I guess, it doesn't have much time left. Hmm. And we're back now with uh, Surab Gupta. Uh, he is a senior Asia-Pacific specialist, and we're talking all things China. I don't know if you had a chance to see this report, uh, Surab. I, I, I wish the guys had seen this who were in that GOP debate, because it came out just before they came on. And if they'd read this report, maybe they would have rethought their points about how we need to, I don't know, bomb China, kill China, end our relations with China, 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 China. Uh, here it is. Tesla is reporting 40% of its batteries, 40% of its aluminum manufacturing, 40% of it, 33% of all the chemicals they use to make their cars come from uh, companies based in China. So the Tesla, which is the car that all Americans seem to want to drive these days and will be the car of the future, most of it is being made by companies in China. Exactly. Exactly. And China, in fact, has the most competitive EV market, electric vehicle market in the world. And, if, and Tesla gets this, that if you want to be competitive in China, competitive globally, you need to have a China strategy and compete and win in China. Because if you win in China, you will win anywhere else. And here's the problem that comes to some of those Inflation Reduction Act subsidies, which, are, which Mr. Biden is putting out out here. He's, he's of course, trying to, to invigorate an EV industry out here, battery sector, etc. And fair, fair enough. I mean, you want to be a competitor in this place, in, in this space. But if you are going to block Chinese competition out, which is the most efficient com competitor out, you are going to create a marketplace which is not cutting edge. And if you are going to create a marketplace which is not cutting edge, you are not going to be able to compete in international markets. So you may not have Chinese production, uh, Chinese cars in this market, and you never know even with all those the, the subsidies and the preferences given, Chinese cars might still be, be competitive as they're selling a lot in Europe right now. I'm talking in terms of EVs. But anyway, the point being that if you want to be world-class, you want to be world competitive, you need to compete with the best. And in doing in, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act ensures that you're not competing with the best, which will not make you the best and will not make you competitive. At the end of the day, they're trying to throw manufacturing employment 
in Michigan and other places, Georgia, etc. But they're not trying to create manufacturing competitiveness, which is the what you should be aiming at long term, which is where China is going and where Tesla is going in terms of the EV sector. So it all sounds nice that there's so much happening right in the EV space in the U.S., but mark my words, this they will not be world competitive. If we go with the argument that, look, China makes our stuff and they did it better than we could and cheaper, so that's why Americans, in many cases, lost some of their jobs because U.S. manufacturers decided, we're just going to let the Chinese make our stuff. Walmart, case study, right? And that's, that's really still going on, right? That really hasn't changed. Jobs have not really come back to America. Yeah, the jobs have not come back to America. What... What, what has happened is America has maintained, it's become, the, it's the hub of R&D and it has just been kicked up and up the value chain. And, and so, I mean, it is super innovative. It can be competitive, but much of the manufacturing happens as well. Think in terms, actually, the ideal sector to think in terms is, is semiconductors. The U.S. is the, I mean, dominant, I mean, the most muscular force in electronic design automation in terms of how you do semiconductor design, in terms of innovation, new techniques, in terms of semiconductor manufacturing tools. But what is kind of deemed to be more blue collar, it's not really blue collar, blue collar because it's such sophisticated production, is, is produced elsewhere. And right. I mean, we have tons of it happening in South right. Korea and, 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 and Taiwan. And, and there is a point to bring some of that back because you need a basic fabrication capacity in this country. You can't be zero. But so there is a certain logic to get even some production back out here. But the point is you have to compete by trying to by 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 be going up the value chain and trying to be much as competitive in that space. And there are huge, enormous profits to begin. Ask uh, Apple about the, the sort of the, where the value added in terms of its iPhone comes from. And much of it comes from non-Asian sources because that's where much of the value is created. And that is where you have to be. Now let me let, let me let me let me push back yeah. as an American on this, okay? Uh, and I'm I'm going to now agree with some of these guys who are the uh, big blowhards on the GOP debate. Um, I get the resentment. I, I, we were once it, right? We were the big fish, right? The United States of America. And there is an argument to be made, I believe, Surab, you're the expert, that the United States came up with this idea of high tech. And much of the stuff that China now excels in originally came from here, and we shared it with them. And they took it over, and they've kind of kicked our butts with it, and in many ways, maybe even manipulated their way into getting good at it. And that's why Americans, at least our American leaders, feel like, you know what? We, 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 we held out a hand, we gave you everything we had, and you've taken it, and now you're beating us with it, and we don't like that. Yeah, right. but two points out here. First of all, where are you going to go because you're beating us with it? So, I mean, you can't go down down value in terms of your production, in terms of your production. You can, as I said, you can get a little production at your end, but uh, you can't be going back to doing the ball bearings and all because, you know, you're going to compete with not the Chinas and all, but you're going to compete with much more average middle-income countries who can who can do that. And so that's going to be, that's, that's going to be one of those issues. Uh, but the second point is, I mean, greater investments need to be made in society out here, much greater investments in education, et cetera, et cetera. You look at in terms of mathematics scores and all those things. I mean, Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing, the students are all from there. Why should it be out there? I read a report. I, I read a report the other day where in China, 
children in fourth and fifth grade are now being taught to program computers using AI. I heard about AI three months ago. I mean, not about AI, but it's, you know, like ChatGPT. First time I ever started using it was like two or three months ago, and I'm a full-blown adult. And children are, have, have been programming. I, I, I don't know about four-year-olds and all, but I'm telling you, they have the most... I no, mean, fourth I mean, grade, not, not four-year-olds. Four, four, no, not four-year-olds, exactly. That's the same. But, yeah. you know, they have also some of the most competitive educational marketplaces in the world out there. It's, I mean, very fierce, the sort of competition. And it's not easy. I mean, at their end, they will complain that this, this is just too much. You're putting too much pressure on the kids and all. But at this, at the end of the day, they know that there is a path to upward mobility through hard work, through dedication to education and these things. And they make that. Yeah. And they've done that in Japan. And it's not easy to make the argument that, oh, we shared it with them. And so now they, they took it from us. You know, what the sharing that was, that happened was sharing of second tier intellectual property with them. The top notch intellectual property is never shared. It's maintained at home on the basis of which you kind of keep on multiplying and, 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 and innovating at your end. And you share that the sort of the, the, the next generation intellectual property because you can make tons of money out of that, frankly. And they, the, what these smaller country, poorer countries at that time did, they took that intellectual technology and they were innovative with it and they moved forward with that. And I think that's why America needs to stay competitive also and not, and there's this, the real danger out here with regard to this protect, creeping protectionism that's coming in is that it will not be protectionism with regard to preserving chips and those sort of things. It'll be protectionism with regard to preserving very yeah. mundane things because protectionism is something we can all kind of uh, support at the end of the day because uh, if you're a politician and that can be in the longer term of things dangerous and that's what is happening on Capitol Hill, frankly, unfortunately. Thank you, Sue Rob. You're always good at conversations like this one. We really appreciate it. All right, so before we go, I want to remind you of our mission. It's simple, really. Uh, we want to de-silo the world. We've got to stop living in these little boxes. Truths don't live in boxes. Truth is everywhere. I'm Rick Sanchez. I'll be looking for you again right here, where I hope to provide some direct impact.